and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 167. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So it's everyone's favorite time of the year again. Stonin' season? Woo! Alright, which one of you sons of bitches has the black dot? I got a piece of limestone with your name on it, you son of a- No, no, settle down. That's in July. It's the third annual Nigerian Scam Spam Contest. Each year at the Drabblecast, we do our part to promote the high art form of Nigerian scam email, elevating the literary genre to a place of sincerest respectitude and most honorable kind acknowledgings. The contest is open to all, Nigerian or otherwise, and has a cash prize of $100 for the winner. The rules are simple. You know those fantastic deals that you're always passing up for some reason, addressed to dearest sir or madam? The ones that are sitting in your junk mail folder right now? Write one of those, but make it funny, creative, unusual, weird, and clever. And 300 words or less. Nigerian Scam Spam makes use of strategic errors in spelling, syntax, and punctuation, and tries to subversively get money or something else from you in some ridiculous, too-good-to-be-true fashion. The idea of this contest is not to make money, of course, but ultimately just to confuse and entertain people. You see, in addition to getting a hundred bucks, if your Nigerian Scam Spam story wins, we spam that puppy out across the internet. Here's last year's winner by Bo Kyer. Dear Earthly Residenter, My wish to your home is not haunting. I know rattling chains and howls is causing marital stress and wetting of beds. My name is Ubuntu Nissan Honda and inhabit your condo. I have taken control of PC to send heartful truths. My luck was to fall from balloon into your community while circling globe for purpose to share glory ambassador to Nigeria. A tragedy, yes, for family, and not I continue to make tragedy no longer for you and children. Wish is for freedom from soul trap that is your excellent furnishings. My sister, App Store Nissan Honda, is powerful Nigerian wish doctor. She is person for best releasing of my trapped spirit. Please touch her B in at 345 Swazu Pines Boulevard, Bauchi, Nigeria, Africa. She charges sacred sum of 200 American green dollars. Make out check to my name, Ubuntu Nissan Honda. She will shed tears and know it as signal her lost brother. Your family's end to suffering will be her joy. Two hundred is a promissory chicken blood and earwax candle deposit and will be returned as I do to safari that lies beyond our knowing. In faith of your presidential, Ubuntu Nissan Honda, phantom and friend. And here are a few of the replies we got from hapless folks on our mailing list, who I'm willing to bet will probably know better this year. Dear Norm, the message below reads almost like flash fiction, but I think it's spam. Or is it a joke? Ubuntu? App Store? Nissan Honda? The return address could be a lie, but it does appear to have come from your account. Are you aware of this? David D. Levine, Writer. Dear Drabblecast folks, I'm confused. 
I'm laughing, but I guess I'm also a little concerned. Your email may have been hijacked by the funniest Nigerian scam artist ever. Chances are you guys are just messing around, though. Just an FYI. Mary Terzillo, writer. You'll find the full guidelines in the Nigerian Scam Spam section of our discussion forums. We're accepting submissions up until July 13th, smack dab in the middle of stoning season, and we're only accepting submissions by email. Send them in to drabblecast at yahoo.com. You can submit multiple entries if you'd like. We post all submissions in the aforementioned section of our discussion forums, and our independent panel of Nigerian judges will have a winner picked out by our next trifecta special. So get writing, weirdos. Make Nigeria proud. All right, next order of business. What you guys do for Dead Duck Day? Check this. Dead Duck Day? You ask. Tell me more. Well, Dead Duck Day is an annual event celebrated at the Natural History Museum of Rotterdam in the Netherlands, celebrating the anniversary of the first known observation of homosexual necrophilia in the Mallard Duck. Wow. You gotta love the Netherlands, huh? This is a place that's totally at peace with its absurdity, that wears its strangeness like a badge on its chest. They could have come up with a fake, feel-good, historic name like everybody else, but instead they're just like, eh, screw it, let's just call ourselves the Netherlands. They don't have skeletons in the closets there. Hell, they don't even have closets. I mean, what's the point? They don't even wear clothes. No need. They don't even have skin. Nope. Just a bunch of skeletons running free in the open. Anyways, back to gay rapist ducks. From the classic Ig Nobel Prize award-winning article, here's how it went down. On June 5th, 1995, an adult male mallard collided with the glass facade of the Natural History Museum of Rotterdam and died. After which, another Drake Mallard raped the corpse almost continuously for 75 minutes. The author of the article then disturbed the scene and secured the dead duck. Dissection showed that the rape victim was indeed of the male sex, and it was concluded that the Mallards were engaged in an aerial chase, or attempted rape flight, when the victim flew into the window of the museum in full flight. The drake that pursued it managed to prevent a collision, immediately landing next to the dead duck. And what followed was the first described case ever of homosexual necrophilia of a mallard. Looking into this further, I found that this pursuit behavior is actually not that uncommon with ducks. Or at least with Dutch ducks. Schloof, bubbly, in mid-March, when ducks congregate in small flocks, more than a dozen mallards may chase a single female in the air, trying to force her down and rape her. And apparently, non-consensual copulation between male ducks is not that uncommon either, nor are instances of necrophilia. Hey, well, ducks will be ducks, the average Dutch duck researcher might say. But never before has a gay duck raped the corpse of another male duck. Now that's cause for celebration. At least according to Keyes Molecker, who won the Ig Nobel back in 2003 for his paper. Since then, he's commemorated the sacrifice made by the poor duck in question with what is variously described as both a memorial service and a reenactment, which he invites everyone to attend and participate in. My name is Kees Moeliker. I'm curator at the Natural History Museum in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. 
I'll show you the duck's uh, testicles and penis. Well, let me see. Over well, here, that's my office. Yeah. There, the window that's open. Yeah. So I, um, yeah, it was here. Yeah, about here. Two meters. Yeah. Here was the uh, crime, crime scene. Yeah. So I, I picked up the duck, it was dead, so no problem. And the, the other duck left but didn't fly away. He didn't, he didn't want to move. Yeah. Have you seen the rapist later? No, no, no trace of it. The live duck mounted the dead duck, that's necrophilia. I looked carefully and I saw both ducks were of the male sex. I said, hey, that's homosexual. Homosexual necrophilia. I thought this was something new, so I paid close attention to it. I went down to get my camera. Do you think that the duck, when he was raping the dead duck, knew he was doing sex with a male duck? I'll show you the duck's uh, testicles and penis. Well, homosexuality in, in, in nature is, is very common, as it is in humans. So there is, there is um, um, like in Malik ducks, there is one in ten, one in twenty has homosexual relation or has homosexual beha behavior. Left and right testicle. But, you know, the homosexual copulations, they're quite rare. They're not, they're not observed that much. The penis. It's shrunk because of the alcohol. And that's the news. That was part one of our two-part Drabble News Ducks Are Bastards special. You think you know ducks, but you have no idea. Just wait. For now, though, it's Drabble time. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. Maybe we'll run it on the show. This week's Drabble comes to us from Justin Slater, and it's called My Wife is a Head of Lettuce. Danger Slater is half man, half TNT, and he's ready to explode all over the fiction scene like two tons of dynamite at a backyard barbecue. Danger lives in New Jersey, and he's a big fan of the Drabblecast. He's only had one story published so far in the Jersey Devil Press, but he hopes to have more soon. Millions more. Billions more. Follow his stalling writing career at dangerslater.blogspot.com. On my way home from work, I stop at a gas station, pick up some breath mints, a card, dozen roses. Today's our anniversary. I pull into my driveway, cut the engine, skip up the walkway, gifts in hand. The front door is ajar. Panic. Has there been a break-in? Robbery? Is my wife being held hostage in some dark basement dungeon? Is my beloved okay? Careful in my step, I creep through the house. Living room, bedroom, bathroom. All empty. Then I find her in the kitchen, spread out on the counter, making salad. The whore. Well, I don't know about you folks, but it's hot around these here parts. What better time to run a story about a snowman? 
We bring you Snowman's Chance in Hell by Robert Jeshonik. Robert's had stories appear in Postscripts, Abyss and Apex, Space and Time, and several DAW anthologies. He's written a collection, Mad Scientist Meets Cannibal, for PS Publishing in England, and Clarion Houghton Mifflin Harcourt will publish his young adult urban fantasy novel, My Favorite Band Does Not Exist, in 2011. This story first appeared in Edison's Frankenstein anthology, from Postscripts, PS Publishing. So, without further ado, Snowman's Chance in Hell by Robert Jashanik. The man of meat sat at a campfire inside an ice cave and watched the snowman build him a partner. The fire was just close enough to remind the snowman of the meat man's new invention and its power to destroy him. If the snowman, whose name was Wink, had known that the meat man would invent such a rotten thing, he never would have built the man in the first place. Make him strong, said the meat man, who called himself Hurt. Strong and smart. Wink continued to knead and shape the flesh on the ice shelf. He had already given it the same rough form as Hurt, which wasn't much like a snowman's body at all. Instead of an elegant arrangement of stacked spheres able to function in concert or independent of each other, Hurt's body consisted of a head and appendages permanently affixed to a central trunk. Hurt's thick, stiff arms and stubby fingers were awkward compared to those of a snowman, which were graceful and branch-like. Hurt's beady, watery eyes and knobby nose were nowhere near as handsome and functional as the stony black eyes and long, pointed nose of a snowman. Still, as crude as Hurt's body was, one fact remained. He was the only meat man who had ever come to life. In those days, when the world was always winter and snowmen ruled it, building men from meat was a diversion. During the annual flesh storms, when meat fell from the sky and covered the ground, roly-poly snow children near and far assembled meat men in parks and yards. In some towns, making meat men was a competition with prizes awarded by judges. This year, Wink was the winner in his hometown of Drift. At least, until his creation killed everyone in town with fire. Why did you make me? said Hurt. Wink's spindly fingers were red with blood as he molded the flesh of Hurt's partner. Not to kill and destroy, that's for sure. <laughs> you did a lousy job then, Hurt laughed. I just wanted to show people what I could do. I wanted someone to like me. And now they're all dead, said Hurt. Because of me. Funny how that worked out. Wink pulled the skin together over Hurt's partner's torso and sewed it up with reindeer hide thread. Yeah, funny, said Hurt. It's almost like you hated them, and I came along and did what you never had the balls to do yourself. Wink ignored him and kept sewing up the skin. You realize I don't know how you came to life, right? I don't know how to make it happen again with your friend here. Hurt got to his feet and scooped a flaming branch from the fire. Oh, I don't know. I think you just need the right 
motivation. Waving the fiery branch back and forth, he walked through the snow toward Wink. No, said Wink, staring into the approaching flame. Please don't. I'll kill you like I killed your whole town, Hurt leered. Like I'm going to kill every last one of you. Wink remembered the glittering icy towers and domes of drift, the sunlight streaming in rainbow colors through window prisms, farmer snowmen tending fields of icicles, snow angels singing and circling overhead. He remembered the town's snow people gathered around his creation, praising it in their wind chime language, filling Wink with pride and triumph. And later, he remembered that same creation stalking through drift with a blazing torch in each hand. He remembered the screams of the townspeople, now more like the howling of winds than the tinkling of chimes. Hate surged in him like the spume of a whale. Suddenly, Hurt's new-made partner on the ice shelf stirred and drew in a sharp breath. Ha! said Hurt. I knew we could do it. He moved closer for a better look, and Wink shrank back from the flame. Wait, why does he look funny? Wink rolled back further. You wouldn't want the two of you to look exactly the same, would you? Hurt stepped closer. But those big bumps on his chest, what are they for? Uh, upper body strength, said Wink. You said you wanted him strong. Huh, how come he doesn't have a tail? Hurt pointed at the tubular organ between his own legs. It's useless, said Wink. You can't swing from a tree or hold a club with it, can you? Hurt frowned, then walked right up to the body on the ice shelf. Hello, he said. The meat person on the shelf opened her eyes. <sighs> she said. I'll be right back, Hurt smiled. I just have to take care of a little something. Then, waving his torch, he stomped toward Wink. Goodbye, Maker, said Hurt. Wink rolled back fast on his big base sphere. No, he said, waving his twiggy hands at Hurt. I, I did what you said. Why kill me now? Well, me and the new meat man don't know how to make more flesh people said Hurt. With you gone, there won't ever be more than two of us in the entire world. You think I'd want any more of you? said Wink. What is hell like for snowmen? Grinning, Hurt thrust the torch forward. A desert? Wink skidded up against the wall of the ice cave and had nowhere left to go. All right, all right. He felt the heat from Hurt's torch, liquefying his crystalline outer crust. But tell me, what will you do when Squall gets here? Squall, said Hurt. What's that? Our god. Water from Wink's melting head trickled over his obsidian eye stones. Taller than a glacier. Mightier than a thousand snowmen, he will strike you down for what you've done to us. 
Kurt looked around. Liar! There is only one way to save yourself. What? Hurt plunged his torch towards Wink. Tell me! Wink felt his body condensing and slumping from the heat. You must fool him, he said. It's called a snow job. Hurt listened. When Wink had finished, he melted him down to a puddle with two black eye stones floating in it. Then he followed the steps that Wink had prescribed to protect himself and his partner from Squall, even though Squall did not exist. What Hurt did was this. He built a snowman just outside the mouth of the ice cave. He even gave it Wink's leftover eyes because they were handy. According to Wink, when Squall saw the snowman, he would be tricked into thinking the cave was occupied by people of snow, not meat. The real reason for the snowman was something that Hurt would never know. In years to come, the meat people and their descendants never forgot the story of Squall. After they had wiped out the snow people ruling the world, they feared Squall's wrath all the more. They tended roaring fires in case of attack and told bedtime stories to keep their children alert. And when there was snow, they built snowmen near their caves and camps in the hope that Squall would pass them by. But what they didn't know was that snow always dreams. Even a snowman made by a meat man dreams and thinks and waits. And snow always comes back. Someday, when it's always winter again, and the meat people build enough snowmen, and the moment is right, the snowmen will rise up and take back the world with swords of ice powerful enough to overcome the hottest fire. They will rebuild the towers and domes of ice and replant the fields of icicles and put up glittering frozen statues in every town square in honor of Wink, who ensured their return. That is the story that snowmen tell each other when no one else is around to hear, their voices tinkling like wind chimes when there are no wind chimes to be found. was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. The end is nigh, apparently. Come wintertime, it's all good till then. Ocean City, here I come. Let's do some listener story feedback. A couple weeks ago, we ran a story with aliens and crows called Birdwatcher by Garth Upshaw. The story got mixed reviews and light feedback, but I'll read at least one listener's review that gave a nice summary. Eton said, I have to say that the story really snuck up on me. 
I was halfway into Norm's comments afterwards when the parallels finally snuck in. The way the aliens gave just a taste of perfect happiness and then left the decision whether to dive back into the fantasy or continue on with their petty lives was even crueler than poisoned mirror shards. We humans should know better, but just like the crows, we just can't help ourselves. The following week, we ran a story set in the land down under, presumably, with bunyips, gamblegams, and cute little adventurous youngins. Episode 163, Once a Month on a Sunday, by Ian McHugh. Moon Owl said, The story was fun. I came away thinking that the little girl was using her imagination to escape her stressful family situation. God knows I did that when I was a kid. But Abby Hilton said, it wasn't a Pan's Labyrinth-type story or even magical realism. It's a true alternate universe with religions subtly different than our own, though they may have similar names, magical creatures to which the adults refer, and a sacrificial system. I don't think we were meant to be uncertain about things, because this little girl is misunderstanding and reinterpreting her magical world just as real little kids misunderstand and reinterpret their own worlds. Poor El Barto said, This was a frustrating story to listen to because I couldn't understand the narration and the dialect. Perhaps if I'd been near a computer and following along with a written version, I could have enjoyed the accent, but I listened to the story in the car on a long drive and was disappointed not to be able to hear it. Sorry about that. You folks at home, let us know if you have issues like that. We have a discussion forum for just such occasions. On the other hand, if everything's hunky-dory and you enjoyed this week's show, be a pal and chuck a donation our way. We've got easy support links off of our main page, Drabblecast.org. Your moolah pays authors for their work and keeps this jalopy going, so we very much appreciate whatever you can give. Oh, one more piece of short fiction on the agenda this week. The weekly winner of our weekly 100-character twitfic twobble contest, Kelly Fay, with this romantic little piece. Bound together, choking on the stink of their own rotting bodies, hearing a joyful cry. Oh, those roses smell wonderful. Ah, oh, poor roses. Time to evolve thorns that spit battery acid. Think you can write a good story with only 100 characters? Give it a shot. Post it in the TwitFix section of our forums. See how it plays out. Maybe you'll be next week's winner. So that's pretty much our show. But before we go, I want to thank this week's awesome episode artist, Skeet Sciensky. Skeet is the creator of Beyond the Disc, a custom illustration business specializing in bringing aesthetics to disc golf functionality. But he's also known to draw a podcast pick or two. He's been featured in Sci-Fi Zine, The Starship Sofa, and the widely known and adored Drabblecast. Winner of the Starship Sofa Best Artist Award for 2009 and featured artist for the Spectator ROCs at the 2007-2009 United States Disc Golf Championship, Skeet hopes to become a full-time illustrator and bacon eater. To see more of his art, please visit him at www.skeetland-art.com. There we go. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Oh, wait. <laughs> Almost forgot to mention that the Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes, Podcast Alley, blog about us. You know you've got friends that would get a kick out of our show. Okay, now we'll see you next week. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly. Norm Sherman, reminding you that it's shrunk because of the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs>